Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. This morning I want to talk to you uh, continue the series in Jesus in the Bible. We've been looking about how Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and we're going to continue with that. Last week, we, last week, uh, we looked at Jesus, the Son of Man, and I feel like uh, I could see light bulbs going off while we were studying that, and things were clicking for people, and that's encouraging. We looked at a few weeks ago Jesus, the Lamb of God, and how that's traced from the Passover Lamb all the way to the Book of Revelation. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and the bronze serpent from the book of Numbers. This is an interesting story. Many people are unfamiliar with this story, so I hope that this helps you get a grasp of where Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, even in some rather obscure portions of Scripture. But before I do that, I want to help us understand the difference between a symbol and its substance, okay? So I have on my left hand my wedding ring. Uh, I've been wearing this nonstop for 15 years. This is the wedding ring that Kendra gave me at our wedding, and it's made of titanium, and I don't know, it's, you know, it's showing a little bit of wear and tear nowadays after 15 years. But you know, she gave me this wedding ring at our, mar- at our wedding ceremony, and I gave her a wedding ring, and we both wear these wedding rings, and uh, these wedding rings are symbols. You know, when at the, at the wedding, I've performed enough weddings and I've gotten married and like they say, oh, the, the wedding ring is circular and it represents the eternal bond and it's, you know, and it's gold, although mine's not gold and gold represents purity and uh, mine's titanium, so maybe that represents stubbornness. But the wedding ring is a symbol and what is the wedding ring a symbol of? It's a symbol of the marriage covenant, Right? The symbol is different than the substance. What is the substance? The substance is our marriage, right? Our marriage is not a symbol of a wedding ring. The wedding ring is the symbol that points to the marriage. Does that make sense? It's a little bit like a road sign. If you're traveling, I know that when I drive up from the south into Philadelphia, before you get into Philly when you're in Delaware, there's a sign that says Philadelphia 35 miles. Well, if I just pulled off on the side of the road at that sign and said, hey, I've made it, I'm in Philadelphia, well, I'm not. That's just a sign that is pointing me to my destination, right? The sign is not the destination. So in the same way, the wedding ring is not the destination, right? This is not the substance. This is the symbol that points to the substance, the substance being my marriage covenant with my wife, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So as we look at these Old Testament stories of the Lamb of God and the Son of Man and uh, the bronze serpent, we want to keep in mind that there are symbols and then there is substance. Not everything we look at is the same. So when we looked last week at the Son of Man, that's not symbolism. That was a, what we would call a Christophany when you see Jesus in the Old Testament. But when we look at the Lamb, and today when we look at this serpent, these are symbols that point us to Jesus, Okay. Now, let me add one more layer to this just to complicate it a little bit, but I think you'll see this today as we look through Scripture. There's the symbol, in this case, this wedding ring. Then there's the substance, in this case, my marriage. 
But then there is also sometimes superstition, where we begin to think that the symbol is the substance, okay? So for instance, if I lost my wedding ring, let's say, and I did once, when I was a little bit skinnier and my wedding ring wouldn't, uh, would slide off sometimes, I was gardening and I went like this and my wedding ring flew off and I lost it in the garden. If you've ever lost a wedding ring, sometimes people think that's, that's just dooming their marriage. Like the wedding ring is, is the substance of the, of the marriage, the power of their marriage, the power of their marriage covenant is in the wedding ring. And if the wedding ring gets lost, oh my goodness, I don't know if my marriage is going to be intact anymore. That is not symbol nor substance, that is superstition. When we begin to think that the symbols that God gives us actually are where the power and the substance and the meaning lie, that is superstition. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going to loop back to that in a little bit. Now, the story we're going to look at today is a little bit obscure. It's not familiar to everyone. It's in the book of Numbers, first of all, and a lot of people don't bother to read Numbers because it's called Numbers. Uh, but the book of Numbers is actually full of an incredible story. Uh, if you start in the book of Numbers, it takes a census, and I understand how some people get lost. It's a census. Oh, my goodness. But the book of Numbers starts with a census and it ends with a census. And the book of Numbers starts with a census and it lists the biggest tribes, the medium tribes, and the smaller tribes. And by the end of the book of Numbers, when they take the second census, you find that the biggest tribes have become the smallest tribes, and the smallest tribes have become the biggest tribes. And then the middle of the book of Numbers is the story of how that happens. And what I always find fascinating about the book of Numbers is you have the same people who are of the same age, the same race, they're living in the same place with the same God, yet some of them are thriving and some of them are failing. And it's really a book about personal responsibility, it's a book about responding to God, it's a book about faithfulness, there's some incredible stories in the book of Numbers. So, I want to pick up in Numbers chapter 21. This story that is, it feels so intense and frankly there's some real authentic questions about what God is like that come out of this passage, but this is Roman, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 9. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard or pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So this story is the Lord sending snakes among the people. It says fiery serpent. Okay, that just probably means it's a snake whose venom causes you burning. Okay, these aren't like serpents made of fire. Old translations, you read this and it makes it sound like they were flying serpents made of flames flying around biting people, kind of like King James English. Well, probably what's more likely is these are either vipers or cobras. If, if you've ever seen a cobra, it has the big like hood that sticks out of its head. Well, somewhere in the translation, it got lost that people started thinking those were wings, 
like they were flying, and they were fiery serpents made of fire. No, these were probably just cobras with the big hood on their head uh, that were biting them and causing them to burn because of the venom. So God sends these cobras or vipers into the, into the camp. So, but why? Why did God do that? Well, if you just backtrack to verse five, this is not on the screen, but verse five says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. I like how they complain like a 10-year-old. There's no food, and I hate the food. Well, <laughs> is there no food, or do you hate the food? You know, like, and honestly, they're complaining about the food. Can you, I mean, my goodness, I Sometimes I feel like God is kind to only send cobras and vipers. I was looking back at this story, and I, and I was like, because I read this, I'm like, man, that seems kind of mean, God, but if you look back in Numbers, what, what have the people of Israel been doing up to this point? God has done ten, performed 10 judgments on Egypt, or plague, the 10 plagues, to get them out of Egypt, right? They get to the Red Sea, and what does God do? Just goes ahead and splits the sea, they walked through the sea. You know, what did they, they complained during the plagues because they didn't like how God was delivering them. They got to the Red Sea and they complained, so God split the sea. They walked through the sea. They get to the other side. They complain against Moses. They don't like the food, and, and so God gives them manna, which is literally bread that just appears on the ground in the morning dew. So they have bread to eat every day. Uh, they say, oh man, God, we're really tired of uh, this high-carb diet. Would you provide us some meat? And so God gives them quail. Birds fly in every day. So they, he says, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out your nose. And then what do they do? They complain about that. You think about it that way, it kind of makes sense. Well, I don't want to say it makes sense. But like you begin to understand what God is trying to accomplish here. He's, he's really trying to root out the complaining He's trying to root out the ingratitude. He's trying to root out the rebellion that's in their heart. And so these snakes are sent in. This is clearly an act of God. This is not just a circumstance. The Lord sends these snakes, and they bite people, and some of them die. And the people realize that this is the result of their sin. They're, they're, they're hard-hearted, but they're not so hard-hearted. They realize that this is the result of their sin. They ask Moses to pray for them and to remove the serpents. Moses does pray for them, and God gives Moses a strategy, and he says, I want you to make, like fashion a, a uh, symbol of a serpent, of a snake. I want you to put it on a standard. A standard is just a pole. Back then, uh, when they used to gather around poles, before you had walkie-talkies and stuff like that in the military, if you needed to know where all the soldiers gathered, they would hold up a pole with a flag on it. You've probably seen that in like Braveheart and other old movies. Everyone would rally to the pole. That's where they knew where to go because uh, that's how they had to communicate. And so he said, take a snake, make a snake out of metal, put it on a pole and hold it up, and anyone who looks at that snake will be healed. Actually, uh, going to throw a picture up of Moses doing just such a thing. This is something I got. Uh, John McManus had this in his wallet. Um, just kidding. Uh, so that's an artist's rendition of, you can see a little bit, hopefully you can make that out, of this pole or standard that Moses made and put the serpent on it. And uh, it says, everyone that looked at the bronze serpent lived. 
They did not have to take medication. They did not have to make an offering. They did not have to burn a sacrifice. They didn't have to recite a prayer. All they had to do was believe and look. I mean, it's, it's very simple, right? If you can muster up the belief and the trust in your heart to turn your head and get look, that's all it takes to be saved, right? There's no, you know, seven-day period of cleansing. There's no religious ritual to go through. It's just believe and look, right? And if you do that, you'll be saved. Now, this is a wild story, in my opinion, and this story is nestled into some historical context. Uh, I want to show you something that we come across every day, a picture of an ambulance. Andrew, if you can throw that picture up. This is just a standard picture of an ambulance here. You ever been behind an ambulance? Better to be behind them than in them, right? Okay, if you can zoom in for me, Andrew, something you may see on the back of every ambulance is that blue asterisk, and what's in the middle of that? It's a snake wrapped around a pole. Now, depending on your worldview, you understand that differently. The, the Hebrew Old Testament is not the on, only uh, ancient text that has a story where a snake is wrapped around a pole. There's a Roman god named, the Roman god of healing or the Greek god of healing was named Alcepius and he had a rod and he would wrap a snake around it. Of course, he didn't come around until about a thousand years after this story. And there were some other, you know, some people believed that snakes were signs of healing because snakes shed their skin and they're always renewed and reborn. And um, so that was a, the idea of a snake to them would have been a little more uh, related to healing than it is to us. But the most famous story, at least in Western culture, that has to deal with a snake wrapped around a rod is this one. So I've been teaching my kids, and I just explained this to Aiden a couple weeks ago. We were behind an ambulance, and I said, do you see that snake wrapped around that pole? That's actually a symbol for Jesus. And so now when we drive past ambulances, and he thinks about healing and Jesus, health and being saved and Jesus. And so while it's probably not the intention of those that put together ambulances, this symbol is actually still in our culture. And it's something that we see, and it's a way that we can find Jesus. You know, some people can find Satan everywhere. Some people find Jesus everywhere. I'm on a mission to find Jesus everywhere. You know, like, I find him on ambulances, find him on TV shows, find him in the grocery store, because Colossians says he's, he holds all things together. He's in all things and before all things. So, where do we find Jesus in this story? Well, the original meaning of this text, if you were just reading it by itself before the New Testament, if you're reading this as a Jewish person, the meaning of this text is that the God who sent the judgment is the same God who sends deliverance. There's no other God to appeal to. I mean, they would have read this text and thought, well, okay, the same God that sent the snakes is the one that can save them from the snakes. There's no other God to go to. That's the whole point of them coming out of Egypt and dealing with the other gods of Egypt. You know, it used to be that if people upset one God, they just went to a different God and you would play the gods against each other, right? What they're learning is there's only one God, which means you can't just play this, the God of judgment versus the God of healing or the God of 
this versus the God of that. There's only one God, which means you don't appease him, you are reconciled to him through things like judgment and repentance. So that's how this would have been understood originally. In John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a a Jewish expert on the Old Testament. So Nicodemus would have been very familiar with the story of the bronze serpent. He was an expert in the law, an expert in the Old Testament. And in uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus in the middle of the night or at the evening because he doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. So he goes in the dark and he, he begins to ask Jesus, like, well, what does a person have to do to be saved? And Jesus introduces this concept of being born again. And Nicodemus does not get it. He, he's thinking this is literal. Like, how do I en- go, you know, back into my mother's womb? And Jesus, I think, is probably frustrated at this point because Nicodemus is supposed to be an expert. And he says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't even understand these things? So in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the two verses pre- preceding John 3, 16, the most, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. In John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, uh, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that, whatever, sorry, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So the last two weeks we focused on the Son of Man and the serpent in the wilderness. Without those two concepts, this passage doesn't even make sense. Half of this verse, uh, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, is what we're talking about today, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which is what we talked about last week, right? So you need to understand those two concepts to even understand what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus is saying this to a Jewish teacher, and Jesus is now saying that that bronze serpent that Moses made and wrapped around a pole and held up that people looked at to be healed, I'm going to be lifted up just like that. And people are going to look at me and be healed. People are going to look at me and be saved. But I'm going to need to be exalted or lifted up or raised up. And we know that Jesus was himself put on a pole or a cross and stood up, right? And we still, to this day, look to Jesus to heal us from the bite of sin. Now, you might look at this and be like, I thought snakes in the Bible were always bad, isn't Satan a serpent? I mean, aren't we supposed to like understand snakes to be the devil? Yes, snakes are always the devil except for when they aren't the devil. I mean, in this one case, the serpent represents Jesus. You know, it's, it's the same thing as the lion. In the Bible, you know, Jesus is the lion of Judah, right? We think of Jesus as a lion, but First Peter says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So if a lion, depending on the context, can represent both Jesus and Satan, this is no different than that. The serpent can represent both Jesus and Satan. It depends on the context that you're reading and what the author's trying to communicate to you about the symbolism here. So Jesus is saying he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted, just like the serpent in the wilderness, and that those who look upon him are going to be saved. 
This is not just saying, hey, that snake, that's pointing to me. It's actually teaching us about the nature of what it means to receive salvation or to receive healing. It's just a faith step. Just like in the book of Numbers, they didn't have to recite a specific prayer or make an offering or go through a ritual or anything like that. They just had to believe and look Jesus is telling us how salvation works. It is simply believing and trusting and looking to Jesus. So we're learning about how a person would be saved, how a person would be redeemed, how a person would be healed. It is by putting your eyes on Jesus. And that whole looking process entails trust. It entails belief. It entails hope. That's the means by which a person is saved, by looking at Jesus. I don't mean looking at a picture of Jesus. That's where the superstition comes in, which we're going to get to in a little bit. I mean the eyes of their heart gazing upon Jesus and believing that he's the one that has the power to heal and to save, which is how they would have believed in that bronze serpent. Okay, Does that make sense? So we're learning about how salvation works. Now, I mentioned earlier that the immediate meaning of this passage was that the God who sent judgment is also the God who sends deliverance. But we see in Jesus the ultimate fulfillment, which is that Jesus will be exalted and that belief in him is the only way to escape a fiery, tormenting judgment. Now, if, can I give you a Bible study tip real quick? This is going to be worth your money today. Okay. In the bronze serpent story in Numbers, we get this immediate meaning. Like, what does it mean on the surface to the people that were reading it, right? But then in John chapter 3, we get this ultimate fulfillment. It's the, it's the big picture, right? When you're reading through the Old Testament and you come across the Lamb of God, the bronze serpent, the Son of Man, there's always a first level interpretation that you have to receive, like you have to accept it based on like what the original people reading it would have understood. But then there's a fuller fulfillment. The, the original or immediate meaning and the ultimate fulfillment are related and the ultimate fulfillment cannot contradict the immediate meaning. So the second passage can't contradict the first passage. It should clarify, it should focus, it should expound upon, but it can't contradict it. Does that make sense? So if you're reading through the Old Testament, you find a picture of Jesus somewhere in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, it explains that picture a little more clearly. That's good. You should be finding those things. Make sure that your New Testament passage doesn't contradict your Old Testament passage, or your understanding doesn't contradict the Old Testament passage. Does that make sense? They are building upon one another, not in conflict with one another. And let me also say, so that we don't get into uh, excessive searches for symbols and images in the Bible. This study that we're doing right now for the last three weeks is something called typology. It's finding type. A type is just a symbol. Okay, I know that that's not how we use that word, but in theology, a type is a symbol. So when you're finding symbols that point to Jesus in the Bible, that's called typology. Those symbols are only symbols when the New Testament says it's a symbol. Okay, so when the New Testament says the bronze serpent points to Jesus, we know that the bronze serpent points to Jesus. When the New Testament says that the lamb 
or the priesthood or the prophetic office point to Jesus, we know that's true. If you read through and think you found some secret in the Old Testament, but the New Testament doesn't say anything about it, you need to chill on that. The Bible is not some book of secret knowledge. It's a book of revelation. It's actually the opposite of secret knowledge. There's an early church heresy called Gnosticism, where people were trying to find secret knowledge in the Bible. That is the opposite of what God is trying to accomplish. He is making secrets known. It's called revelation, right? So he's not trying to hide, you know, codes in the Bible, okay? He's actually revealing everything through Jesus. He is summing up everything. He wants us to know it. So I I say this because I want to just make sure we're not going through the Old Testament trying to find little nuggets that the New Testament doesn't tell us is a nugget. Know what I mean? It's a nugget when the New Testament says it's a nugget. I hope that makes sense. Okay, I don't know if I explained that clearly enough, but hopefully it makes sense. Yes, that's a good way of saying it. Susan said the Bible will interpret the Bible, and we're going to actually do that right now as we get to the third story. So, The symbol is the bronze serpent, right? But what's the substance? Jesus on the cross. That bronze serpent is kind of like the wedding ring that points to the substance, which is Jesus' atoning death on the cross. But there is a superstition that kicks in here. And this is, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 18, this is, I think this is a fascinating story. Second Kings are in the period of Israel having kings. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and there's mostly bad kings, but there's a few good kings. Well, there's this good king named Hezekiah, and uh, Hezekiah um, is a good king, and he wants to go through the land, and he is very precise in what he does to restore righteousness to the land. There are other kings that went before him that did some good things, but Hezekiah had this like exacting focus on exactly uh, what he was going to accomplish here. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to ver- read verses 3 through 6. This is 700 years after the bronze serpent story. This is 700 years later. It says, Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Uh, Nehushtan, yeah, Nehushtan. So, at this point in Israel's history, they had fallen into something called syncretism. Syncretism is when you begin to mix Christianity with something else or biblical theology with something else and I'm gonna talk about that more in a moment. But they had gotten into this syncretistic practice. So for instance, all the other pagan nations would have high places. They would go to the top of a mountain or the top of a hill to worship their uh, idols and the God of Israel said, you don't need to do that, I'm everywhere. Well, they, they compromised. Israel was, was compromising. They said, we're going to go to the top of a mountain, but we'll worship Yahweh. And Hezekiah said, no, we're going to stop with all that. He said not to do this. So thinking that we're worshiping Yahweh in a way that he told us not to worship him is still rebellion. Does that make sense? 
So Hezekiah is not the first, pers- the first king to tear down high places because other kings, Josiah and others, would go and tear down high places to Baal and high places to Molech. Hezekiah is the first one that tore down high places to Yahweh because Yahweh said, don't use high places. Does that make sense? Hezekiah is just, he's threading the needle here. He's saying, we're going to go all the way back to what Yahweh said, how he wants to be worshipped. Well, not only is he tearing down high places and other monuments, it actually says that he broke into pieces this bronze serpent. So they saved the bronze serpent that Moses made. They saved it for 700 years. But they were now worshiping it. They were burning incense to it. They set it up somewhere, in a tent maybe. They were burning incense to it. And Hezekiah decides he's going to take it upon himself, and he's the king, so he has this right. He's going to take it upon himself to destroy this historic artifact that has significant meaning to the people. And he destroys it. Why does he do it? Yahweh said to not do this. Yahweh said we're not supposed to make idols. Now the same Yahweh that said don't make idols said to Moses, make this bronze serpent. But see, here's the problem. The symbol had become a superstition. They began to think that that bronze serpent actually had power in itself. They began to think that they were actually healed by the bronze serpent, not by Yahweh through the bronze serpent. Does that make sense? They began to make an idol out of this good thing. Now, I want you to think, just put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. What do you think people told him? You're going to destroy what? And you're going to do that because in the name of serving Yahweh, you're going to destroy something Yahweh gave us? I'm sure that he had people that said, don't do that. I'm sure that he has had people that questioned his own devotion to God because he was going to destroy this thing. But it was actually his real devotion to God that caused him to do this. Does that make sense? Like, I'm sure people didn't understand what was going on in his head. But Hezekiah decided, listen, I know that, well, I'm paraphrasing here and suggesting some things, but Hezekiah determined what we're doing here is sinful. Burning incense to this thing, the Nehushtan, the fact that it had a name, Nehushtan, which means the bronze thing. The fact that they named it and were burning incense to it means that they were using it in a way that was never intended to be used. So he decides that he's going to destroy it. So now we've moved from symbol, which is the original bronze serpent, to the substance, which we understand to be Jesus, but they've drifted into superstition. Superstition, and I don't mean for all of these to start with S, but they just do. This is not on purpose. Superstition and sentimentality are probably the two biggest counterfeits for biblical spirituality. When we get superstitious and begin to think that there's power in our gold cross that we wear or power in a statue of a saint or power in this thing or that thing, that's superstition. Or when we get sentimental and we begin to get warm, fuzzy feelings about uh, the good old days or you know, the old camp meetings and you know, old hymns and sentimentality. Let's just call them for what they are. They're sentimentality, they're superstition, they are not biblical spirituality. 
And I am convinced, because I've been a pastor long enough to observe this, many people's spiritual life is nothing more than warm, fuzzy, sentimental feelings and superstitions. And so they're not really encountering the living God. They're living on warm, fuzzy feelings about the past and their good luck charms. Does that make sense? So they've moved... They're, they're not even focused on the symbol. They're certainly not experiencing the substance, which is Jesus. They're simply being superstitious. And superstition is not the same thing as spirituality. These symbols, the symbol of the uh, bronze serpent is supposed to point them to Jesus, but it had become an idol. Now, we have, in our culture, we have things that can turn into this. I have no problem with a person wearing a cross as long as you understand that that cross is not the, it's not the source of power, okay? It's not a medallion or an amulet that you get spiritual power from. What it is is something that can remind you about Jesus, not replace Jesus, okay? This can happen sometimes even with communion. It can happen with baptism, uh, you know, I like old Bibles. You can have your great-grandfather's Bible and think that somehow there's some magic power in that. That is superstition. If there's power in the Bible, you know where that came from? The fact that it's God's word. Not the fact that it's been in your family for 10 generations. That's nice, but that's sentimental. You understand what I'm saying? Like, the power comes from God. The power doesn't come from sentimentality. The power doesn't come from superstitions. And what we want to do is reject superstitions because when we adopt superstitions, we begin to do, I know there's a lot of S's today. When we adopt superstitions into our spirituality, we're guilty of syncretism. I really didn't try to make all these S's work. It's just, this is obviously, you know, God wanting to get through to you by making it really memorable. The, uh, I've had a couple encounters with syncretism. Some have been clearer than others. In 2008, when my wife and I moved here to start the church, one of the first things I had to deal with was the church was being used, this building was being used by three other congregations. And I was supposed to start congregation number four. And that was difficult. And uh, every, I, here I was, we didn't even have any people, and I'm just um, refereeing fights between this congregation wants to use the building on this day, and that congregation wants to use the building on that day, and I was basically like a superintendent for the church building. And in my spare time, I was trying to be a pastor. <laughs> and I had to deal with some issues, and uh, you know, there's just something about when people rent church buildings, they just don't take care of them the way they should, and so I had to ask every congregation to leave at some point. One of the congregations did not take that information very well. On December 12th, coming up on uh, 12 years now, on December 12th, they were asked to leave. On December 14th, two days later, I came home and found that my neighbor's dog was attacking people. New appliances in our houses had stopped working New appliances, like, weren't working anymore. One of our staff members at the church was getting violently ill. 
And on December 14th, 15th, and 16th, I had nightmares, like horrible, horrible, sleep-stealing nightmares for three nights in a row. It was a lot. I remember coming home on the 14th, I'm like, wow, it's like one thing after the other. I get home, there's no hot water. I get home, my neighbor's dog is biting people. I get home, one of our church staff members is sick for no reason. And then I, that night I go to bed and I can't sleep. And I go to bed the next night and I can't sleep. And I go to bed the next night and I can't sleep. So I come out on the 16th and I'm, or the 17th and I'm praying and I'm like, I wonder like if that church put a curse on us or something. And I'm not the most discerning person, but like three nights of nightmares caused me to start to question a few things. Well, I started to look around the property and I found, I know this is a little, in a, probably a mildly inappropriate for Sunday morning, but I began to found human waste on the northeast corner. We own three pieces of property. The northeast corner had human waste uh, on all three pieces of property. Now that's not totally unseen in Philadelphia. That's not like totally out of the ordinary, but I just thought, wow, good aim. What a coincidence that it's in the same place and all pieces of property. And so I started to do a little research and I had a friend of mine who was a missionary who was from the same nation that the church that I was dealing with was from. And I said, here's what we're dealing with. And he said, yeah, that's voodoo. I saw that. And he started to tell me about these practices and ways that, that churches would put curses on people in this place where he was a missionary and they would use uh, human waste or hair or urine or eggs uh, to put curses on people and the curses were specifically against their buildings which I thought was interesting because that's exactly what we were dealing with and it made sense that all our appliances would break in one day and so I went through a process, myself and our uh, other pastor at the time went through the process of praying over every single piece of property and rejecting and renouncing those things and everything worked out fine, but it was a wild week into my first December in Philadelphia. And I confronted this pastor and I said, uh, I said I'm not sure you guys are a biblical church if you're doing this, and he denied it obviously. Because they're a church, but I'm like, you know, practicing this kind of, folk, uh, cultic spirituality is not consistent with the Bible. He denied it. And maybe he genuinely didn't know what was going on in his congregation, but he denied it. And so that was it. I mean, I didn't know what else to do. He went his way. I went my way. They moved their church to the suburbs. And that was really the last I heard from them until about two years later, another pastor that we both knew called me and said, you know that pastor that you had to ask to leave your church? I said, yeah. He's like, yeah, he just brought a bag of occult items, idols and little shrines and things. He brought them to my house because he said he collected them from people in his church and he didn't know what to do with them. And uh, so he gave them to me and I don't know what to do with them. And I said, well, I'm not taking them, burn them. And he didn't want to burn them. I, I said, well, you, you know, they're in your possession, but you should probably burn them, but I'm not going to burn them for you. Well, that's syncretism. When you mix a little bit of the Bible with a little bit of superstition, a little bit of folk, you know, like cultural stuff, you, you, you get into syncretism. Now, this is a little harder for us to see when it's our own culture. See, it was easy for me to spot because I'm not from that culture like I could see that from a mile away. You know where syncretism is hard to see? When it's your own. When it's your own syncretism. 
When you begin to mix into your spirituality parts of your, uh, parts of like uh, cultural compromises that we have accepted in the United States as just part of life. When we decide that we're going to intimately marry politics and religion, when we decide that we're going to intimately marry our own culture, for instance, like as a, as a white person, if I think that like the white understanding of this passage is the right understanding of this passage, now I'm guilty of syncretism. Does that make sense? When I think that the way that I grew up doing it is the way that it must be done, now I'm guilty of syncretism. When I think that, you know, uh, my ethnic group or my race or my, you know, whatever, perspective, my theological tradition is the only way to understand the Bible, now I'm guilty of syncretism because I've mixed in my culture and I've made my culture the lens with which I view the Bible instead of making the Bible the lens with which I view my culture. Does that make sense? Now, I, I went a little bit off on a tangent there, but I wanted to point out that here they have this bronze serpent and they've turned it into a, an item for their superstition. We want to make sure that we don't do that. I've been in a couple meetings in my lifetime where I've actually called people forward. If you have a good luck charm, a lucky rabbit's foot, I know these are all like, you know, they're just, these seem like these seeming little, little innocent things. Um, but, but any access we give to alternate forms of spirituality are not innocent little things. They're superstitions, and they do give you access to alternate forms of spirituality, and they're all evil. So I've called people up and said, hey, if you feel like, if you have this little good luck charm or this you know, lucky rabbit's foot or something that you feel like you derive supernatural power from, you need to know that that's not from the Lord. And you either need to totally renounce that or you need to bring it up here and give it up. And we had, uh, for years, we had a bucket in the office. I, I would always call it the witchcraft bucket for people to, when you call someone superstition witchcraft, they don't like you. But I really think that's what it is. And so I would have people come and bring their stuff up and some, usually they would wait till after the service because uh, they didn't want to do it in front of everyone, but we would get rid of it for them, and we've had multiple fires where we've had to burn the stuff that people have turned in. But listen, what that does is it provides freedom because now you can move away from the superstition and actually encounter the substance of what the Bible's talking about when it refers to Jesus. As long as you're relying on a lucky rabbit's foot and a good luck charm and a you know, Hail Mary and a statue, you're not relying on Jesus right? So all those things that you think you're getting benefit from that aren't directly Jesus, you got to get rid of that stuff. You can get rid of it at home. You can bring it here and get rid of it, but you somehow find a way to get rid of that stuff because you're missing out on something greater. You're missing out on the actual substance of what the entire Bible is pointing us to. And so we see that in this story of how even in the days of Moses, it's pointing to Jesus. And when that gets out of whack, they cut it out, right? Because if a sign is not pointing to its destination, it's not a good sign. And so the substance that the, uh, the Bible or God through the Bible wants us to experience is Jesus. Now, all right, let me try to wrap this up. And uh, I'm gonna ask John Eric to come and lead us in a closing song. We learn from this passage about God 
that God is a judge. He's, he's the one that sent those snakes, right? But he did it after opportunity, after opportunity, after opportunity, after opportunity for them to repent. He finally sent those serpents as a form of a wake-up call. God is a judge. God is also a healer. Look at how all you he, all he had to do was look at the bronze serpent on the pole and you were healed, right? God is also a savior because this is all fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, not only uh, will you look, well, did they look at that serpent and were healed? If you look upon me, you'll be saved. And what will you be saved from? Remember, what was the impact of the serpent that bit them? Fiery torment. What will you be saved from if you look at Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your trust on Jesus and turn the eyes of your heart toward Jesus, you'll be saved from fiery torment that is your own doing, that you've brought upon yourself through rebellion and through complaining and through resisting God's will. So it all comes down to just having this kind of impulse of faith and trust in your heart that you're willing to set your eyes on Jesus and believe he's the one that's gonna set me free from what I'm suffering. All right, Pastor John Ike, if you come up and lead us in a song, if you wouldn't mind standing with us, I wanna pray for us. The reason people turn to these uh, other sentiment, sentimentality and superstition is because they have not had an encounter with God yet. And we wanna lead people into an encounter with God. So Jesus, we don't wanna just tell people what to do and not to do and create rules. We actually want them to experience you and to have an encounter with you to where they see with their eyes that you're better than all these things that we make up. You're better than fuzzy, warm feelings. You're better than superstitions, in a, which is essentially our own personal religion that we create. I ask Jesus that we would have real encounters with you, that we would find in you, Jesus, the substance of the Old Testament and the substance of the New Testament, that you are summing up all things in yourself that everything points to you and that we can find you everywhere and we can encounter you everywhere and at all times. I ask that in Jesus in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.